Good morning, everyone. Thy word, thank you, Aaron. Thy word, I've hid in my heart that I will not sin against you or against thee. Um, let's keep that in, in back of mind, top of mind, as we go through this uh, this morning. Um, Aaron reached out to me, I don't know, it was about midweek, and asked what was the message going to be on so he could tailor the song. So great job with that. So um, welcome, a beautiful day out today. I'll look outside for you because I want you to focus up here. <laughs> the sunshine, and if you're not familiar with that thing in the sky, but it started shining this week, so praise the Lord that he's blessed us with tremendous weather. Winter is not over yet. Right, Marvin? Because you're my weather guy. So winter's not not over yet. So, But praise the Lord for the sun. So our title, if you were to look, if you look at your bulletin, is Beati Sunt. And then it says Sermon on the Mount. Beati Sunt does not mean Sermon on the Mount. Anybody know what Beati Sunt means? Any Latin geeks in here? Other than, huh, anybody? What does it mean? Yeah, what does that mean? Beati Sunt. Don't ask your dad. Come on. <laughs> What's it mean, Ethan? Say again. They are blessed or blessed are. That's how we're going to do it today. So it's, uh, what language is that, Ethan? Latin. Thank you. Thank you. It's not Greek. It's not Hebrew. But Beyonce suit. So as Aaron mentioned, uh, we are going to jump in. Everybody say amen. We're done with the book of James. So, but we are going to, it only took almost a year, but that's okay. Uh, we are going to jump into the Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount is very short. It's in the book of Matthew, not referring to Luke 6, where we see the Sermon on the Plain, but it's in the book of Matthew, chapters 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And so we're going to do a very broad overview today. And then as we go into it, we'll dig deeper. We will start with the Beatitudes, and then we'll just go on from there. So so really quick, could everybody please stand as we read? I don't have this on the screen, but if you would like, you can turn in your uh, Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And we will go ahead and read through chapter 5, verse 10, just to lay a foundation, but we will get back to these verses in chapter 5 again near the latter part of, of the message. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. This is to give us context. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. 
Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And lastly, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your people at Turkey Run. We thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, we commit to you this morning, the remainder of this morning, Father, to study, to be attentive. Lord, to check our hearts, check our minds. Lord, as we dig into this very, very important sermon, we give this time to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. I find it appropriate, and I love the Spirit of God. Does everyone here love the Spirit of God? Amen. Here's why I say that. On Wednesday night, um, Jordan led us in Wednesday night, and in, I can only speak for the men's group on Wednesday night, not, not the ladies' groups. We got onto the topic of vengeance and justice and, and all of that as we were going through uh, uh, the Psalms. And then... Wayne led us this morning in Sunday school, and that theme just continued right into it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What is justice? Is there true justice on the earth today? Or do we have to wait for the kingdom to come to experience true justice? And those are topics that, that we discussed. And as we looked at Psalm 109, uh, Wayne led us this morning. In the New King James Bible, there's a little subtopic listed above that, and it says this. I wrote it down. David pleads for judgment for those who falsely accuse him. And I was thinking, okay, that's the Old Testament. That's how that system, that, that the law worked back then. But then I thought in Matthew 5, in verse 43 to 44, it says this, you have heard that it was said, what was said? You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What is that referring to? It's referring to the law. It's referring to the old times. Verse 44, but I say to you, who said it? Jesus said it. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, we're not going to get into loosening lug nuts on tires as we did in Sunday school, but look at the, the difference from David pleading for judgment on those who falsely accuse him to the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 and 44, love your enemies. That's not our topic today. We will get to that later, weeks later probably. But just think about the difference. What happened in between those two things? That was the man who was speaking, the God-man who was speaking. He came and everything changed. Amen? So, but our topic today is the Sermon on the Mount. So, again, I mentioned it's the book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount are teachings of Jesus in a very direct manner. Now, Jesus does use parables. He does use stories. But in the Beatitudes, and we're going to start that today. We won't finish the Beatitudes today. 
we'll probably very even have a hard time even getting to all of it. But especially in the Beatitudes, it's a very direct manner. He doesn't talk about a story about a, a, a merchant traveling down the road. He doesn't talk about uh, somebody at the well. He doesn't talk about all those types of things that we hear later in the Gospels. The Beatitudes is direct and to the point. The Sermon on the Mount focuses on the kingdom of God. So Wayne mentioned this morning, and Wayne, I'm trying to remember, it was like 150 times, 150 or something like that, was the mention of, um, give me that background real quick, the Exodus. Over 100, and, okay. So well over 100 times the Exodus is mentioned. And so in this case, in three chapters, we see the kingdom the variation of kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, or the word kingdom appears eight times in those three chapters. It's a huge focus of what Jesus is speaking about. So here are some questions and a comment. The Sermon on Mount has been interpreted by biblical scholars differently over the years. So here are some questions. Rhetorical, don't need answers. Get us to think. Is the Sermon on the Mount a salvation message? Some believe it is, especially, I'll go back and take a look, and we'll get to this again, especially verses 3, 4, and 5, and 6, because they say you can't be a Christian, really, and pull off verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Do you see what that school of thought is? Those who are poor in spirit are those who are not born again. Those who mourn, well, all people mourn, we know that. Those who are meek, lowly. And then, then we get to verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they believe that that is where that conversion takes place. They hunger and they thirst for righteousness. And guess what happens? They are filled. And so they believe that happens there. Because in verse 7, they say, how can a Christian, how can a non-Christian be merciful? Verse 8, how can a non-Christian be pure in heart? Verse 9, how can a non-Christian be a peacemaker? And verse 10, are non-Christians persecuted for righteousness' sake? So that's where you would see these questions from theologians, is that, is the Sermon on the Mount a salvation message. We will get into that not today, probably in two weeks. Another question, and there's a lot of debate on this one. Is it for life now, today, let's say 2024, or are the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, are they for life in the kingdom that's going to come in the future, the kingdom where we're going to go? Okay. We might touch on that in a little bit. Another question, is this just fanciful idealism? Who here has read the Sermon on the Mount in their life? Okay. Who here has lived up to every one of those? I'm going to put my hands down here because they're, they're really low. Okay. Is it idealism? Did Jesus say something that man cannot attain? Even born-again, regenerated man cannot Attain? Theologians have been bouncing us around for a very, very long time. Or is this something for down the road? 
hey, when we get to the eternal kingdom, we'll be able to. But I think when we're in the eternal kingdom, are we still going to get persecuted for righteousness' sake when we're in the eternal kingdom? So that gave you a hint in my thought process on that, but that's to come later, later. The third bullet point. Was the Sermon in the Mount only meant for Jesus' disciples at that time? And to give you a quick overview of that, Mike and I were just talking about that as we were at the, the coffee table, whatever you want to call it. We read it. Jesus, all this stuff was happening in, in Matthew chapter 4. Multitudes are following. It says in verse 24, his fame, he actually had fame. He was famous. His fame and throughout all of Syria and all these other places we read. But then in verse chapter 5, verse 1, he saw the multitudes and what did he do? Did he run to the multitudes? No. He went up on a mountain. Okay. Did he flee? I don't necessarily, I don't think I would use that word comfortably. But he went up on the mountain. He sat down. His disciples came to him. So some of these theologians would say, this message was just meant for those disciples. Or was it the apostles, the twelve? don't know. It just says his disciples came to him. Other theologians say that the multitude followed him up the mountain. We don't have a clear direction here. And so you will get a lot of debate over that third bullet point. Was it meant for them only? Or is it actually meant for us today? Christians then, Christians today. Another question. I have a couple more. They're not on the slides. Is this just a humanistic version of utopia? Love your enemies. Go to, go to Lancaster or go to Columbus. My, um, Wayne mentioned Columbus and the lug nuts and things like that uh, in the Sunday school message. Go up there and just ask people on the street, do you love your enemies? <laughs> what do you think the answer is? No. No. Go to Christians walking out of churches across America today. Meet them at the parking lot at their car. Do you love your enemies? I think you're going to get, thank you, Tim. Tim's on. That's an honest man right there. He went like that. I think he's right. Okay. So is it a version of utopia? Is it a pie-in-the-sky worldview? Sermon on the Mount. Pie-in-the-sky worldview. So I want to introduce something to everybody. You've probably heard this, but if you haven't, I'm going to introduce it to you anyway. Here's another thought out there. It's called the already, but not yet. Has anybody ever heard of that term? The already, but not yet. Okay. I'll read a little bit to you here, not much. The theological concept of already, but not yet, holds that believers are actively taking part in the kingdom of God today. Although the kingdom will not reach its full expression until sometime in the future. We are already in the kingdom, but we do not yet see it in its full glory. That thought process was put forward by, if I can pronounce his name, Gerhardus Voss, a Princeton theologian, back in the early 1900s. In the late 19, in 1950s, a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, George Ladd, argued that there are two meanings of the kingdom of God. So I'm going to park it right there, and we'll get to his two meanings in a second. We will discuss later, not today, 
but we have to get a concept into our minds and our hearts of two kingdoms. Because as we read, especially the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see a differentiation between the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and the kingdoms of this world, and how those two systems operate. If we do not have, again, if we do not have a two-kingdom concept ingrained in us, we don't get the full meaning of what we're going to study in, in the weeks ahead, months ahead, whatever. Back to George Ladd. He argued that there are two meanings of the kingdom of God. Number one, God's authority and right to rule. Okay? There's a kingdom. He's a king. He has authority. He has a right to rule. That's the same in earthly kingdoms. Look at all the kingdoms in history of the world, human kingdoms. Typically, there's what? There's somebody at the top. And what are they called? A king. And it's their domain, and they have the right to rule. So that applies in the spiritual realm as well. George Ladd's number two point is the realm in which God exercises his, his authority. The kingdom then is described in scripture both as a realm presently entered and as one we also enter in the future. Okay, Presently entered and one we enter in the future. So Ladd concluded that the kingdom of God is both present, and future at the same time. Okay, anybody confused yet? We're good? Remember, ingrain in your minds and your hearts, there are two kingdoms at play here. So, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. But I want to look a little bit deeper, and then we'll get into some questions and, and comments about the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. This is not an outline of the study for the next months, okay? But we're going to have a challenge at the end of the message here in a little bit. In this screen, you'll see the slide, you'll see it again. This is what the Sermon Amount comprises of. So in three short chapters, what do we get? We get the Beatitudes. We get the believers are salt and light. We see that Christ fulfills the law. We see that murder begins in the heart. We see adultery in the heart. We see marriage is sacred and binding. We see that Jesus forbids oaths. We see that we need to go the second mile. And I touched on this earlier. We need to love our enemies. We need to do good to please God. Do good to please God. Kind of reminds me of the book of James. I wonder if Jesus knew about that book. Anyway. We see the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Um, Wayne, you mentioned the, the Lord's Prayer during Sunday school. We see that fasting is to be seen only by God, not as a show for those out in the public. We need to lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth. The lamp of the body. We cannot serve both God and riches or God and mammon. We're not to worry. Oh, back to James again. We're not to judge. We're to keep asking, seeking, and knocking. The narrow way, you will know them by their fruits. I never knew you, which none of us want to hear. And we need to build on the rock, not on sand. That is Matthew 5, 6, and 7 compiled into the subheadings or the subtopics of the entire sermon. So when you look at 5, 6, and 7, if you have a red-letter edition Bible or if you're looking on a phone or an app and you have it in red, 
Every word except the first two verses in five. And I'm just going to double check myself. And the last two verses in seven are read. You have three chapters of straight at you, the words of Jesus. Okay, so I have a question for you. Not a question. I guess it is. How important is the Sermon on the Mount? How important is it? Again, is it fanciful? Is it a utopia version of the world? Or is it actually the words of Jesus to his people? We're his people. As I said earlier, the Bible scholars, they see it a lot of different ways, depending on denominations, depending on background, uh, depending on their worldview. Do they use exegesis or do they use eisegesis when they look at the scripture? In other words, do they let the scriptures preach for, or speak for itself? Or eisegesis, do they bring their worldview and they look at the scripture to confirm their worldview? We see that a lot, of course. Bible scholars also say, no matter what their worldview is, they say that this is the greatest message Jesus ever preached or taught. That it's the ethics of Christianity. Well, if it's the ethics, my, my contention a little bit is, I agree it is, you know, it's the sermon. If it's the ethics of Christianity, then that means it must be able to be applied today, not just in the future to come. So let's think about this for a second. If we talk about Jesus sitting on this mountaintop, bringing forth this message, what other, from a human history perspective, what other movements, what other philosophies have had messages or proclamations like this? So let's dig back in history just a little bit. We're not going to go too far back, <laughs> looking at the uh, time frame here. Communism and socialism. Can anybody think of the message that started all of that? It was called The Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels. I'm sure communism and socialism were thought out, but when it went to book form, it spread to the masses. Okay? Does that compare to the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> Nowhere near it. Okay? What about biological evolution? Can anybody think of a book that was written about biological evolution? Charles Darwin? Somebody said it back there. On the Origin of Species. That book had profound effects in the world. And it has profound effects in the world to this very day. Okay. Humanism. I've never read these. These two I'm going to bring up to you. The Humanist Manifesto, 1933, Volume 1. Humanist Manifesto number 2, I think was in the 50s, about 20 years afterwards. That set into motion the humanist movement across the world. There, are always, there was always a humanist movement. You had Socrates, you had Plato, you had all of those scholars and stuff from, from, from ancient Greece. But the modern humanist movement started with a manifesto. Does it compare to the Sermon on the Mount? Nowhere near it, because it's going to burn in the end. The Sermon on the Mount stands forever. Can anybody think of a manifesto or a document or a philosophy based on national sovereignty and the rights of man? Let's say the 1700s, late 1700s, the United States Declaration of Independence. Think what that has done, not just in our nation, but what has that document done as it's spread around the world? It's helped fuel freedom in the world. How does it compare to the Sermon on the Mount? It burns in the end. People are trying to burn it today in our own country, as we know.
The last point on this is biblical ethics. What two, I'm going to use the term documents, but what two sections of our Bible, short sections, would be thought of when you think of the word biblical ethics? One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The Old Testament is the Ten Commandments. And the New Testament is our subject, the Sermon on the Mount. Those, you could boil down biblical ethics or ethics of the kingdom. Before we go on a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount, I want to touch on one thing about this already and not yet. I want to tell you a story. And I think Jordan and Annabelle, they'll relate to this because you're about ready to go through it again. <laughs> so I can think back years ago, Melissa was pregnant with our first Natasha. So think of the already but not yet. So let's say Natasha's, or Melissa's, sorry, Melissa's eight, nine months pregnant, right? Do I have a daughter? Yeah. Yeah. We're not evolutionists here, right? <laughs> okay. Do I have a daughter? Yeah. Okay. So can I see my daughter? Well, yeah, I can see my daughter move around. I can see a little arm, a little elbow, or a foot kick and stuff like that. I can put my hand on my wife's belly, and I can feel my daughter moving around. Amen? Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? Guys, you're happy you don't know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Okay. Again. So Jim has a daughter. He already has a daughter. But not fully yet. But on December 25th, that year, the not yet became now. And so when we think of the already not yet, think of that as kind of a human way to look at it. So back to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's think about this for a second. Again, it doesn't matter if the multitudes went up to the top of the mountain or just, or just the disciples, as it says here. It doesn't matter whichever. There were people listening to him, and he. it says here, then he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and then everything after that is in red in my Bible, okay? That, those words that came out of his mouth were so revolutionary when they heard it because they lived under the law at that time. Jesus hasn't, hadn't died and was resurrected yet. They were still under the law. Think about this. So what we need to do is kind of transport ourselves, our worldview, and be... Jews at that time. I just have six, seven bullet points here. It's not on the screen. But just think about, I'm going to pull some pieces out of this message from Jesus. Does everybody have your Jewish, right? Jewish thinking cap? Here we go. Jesus said something like this. If you're angry, angry with your brother without cause, you're in danger of judgment. He said, if you look at another with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. He says, if you divorce without a cause of immorality, you've committed adultery. We touched on this in Sunday school, Wayne. He said, you know, it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I'm going to tell you something different. You must not resist an evil person. Is that revolutionary or what? Because you try that on the streets today, 
you'll probably get the same response as you did the people who were listening. He said, and we referred to it earlier, he said to love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Love your enemies and bless those who curse you. He said to do good deeds. Where? In private. Not out, not out so everybody can see you because he says if you do that, you get your reward there. But you're not going to be rewarded later. Let's do things in private so we get rewarded by him later. Revolutionary. He said to pray in private. Wang was actually talking about the things in the frontlets and the things on the, on the hand that, uh, that the Jews were doing from uh, Shema, I think it was, Deuteronomy. But he said, Jesus said, I want you to pray in private so you're not before men to be seen. And the last one I wrote down is you need to forgive others so your father will forgive you. Is that hard? Think about those guys. Think about those disciples, whether there's a throng of them or just a few of them. Think about what was going on in their minds and in their heart. Jesus is actually teaching them something that is so counterintuitive to the law that they had lived their whole lives under. Praise the Lord that we don't have that issue today. So what do others say about the Sermon on the Mount? Okay. Richard of St. Victor. Anybody know Richard of St. Victor? I never heard of him until I put this slide up here, okay, until I researched it. Uh, 1100s AD, uh, he was a uh, prior, led a church. Uh, St. Victor is uh, the name of the church, so it's Richard of St. Victor. It'd be like Mike of Turkey Run. 21st century. <laughs> okay. Maybe they'll quote you in thousands of years, Mike. Who knows? Okay. The Sermon on the Mount is neither impractical idealism nor a collection of unlivable moral precepts. It is a superb analysis of right action in the light of things as they really are and not as they appear to be. So does Richard think that the Sermon on the Mount is for the future or during the 1100s when he was walking on the face of the earth? I think we know the answer to that. Robert Menz, Menzies, Menzies, he was the prime minister of Australia from 1948 to 1966. That's an accomplishment just to be a leader of a country that long without being a dictator. But he's a politician, so we're going to read him. To a practicing politician, I know of no document more disturbing than the Ten Commandments unless it's the Sermon on the Mount. Apparently, he didn't like them because he probably didn't. I don't know anything about his life. He probably didn't like Christian ethics. Okay. To his credit, he led, uh, well, he led the country after the war. So, but anyway, I thought I'd throw that in on a negative side. Here's somebody I don't think most of you know. I stumbled on him a while back. He's a pastor in Virginia. His name is David Schrock. He has a blog. Uh, but here's what Pastor Schrock says. The Sermon on the Mount calls the disciple to live according to the future kingdom in the present world. Pastor Schrock is just, Mike, he's out there. This is how we're supposed to live. We are supposed to live according to the future kingdom in the present world. Well, how do we know how to live in the future kingdom? We know by Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. 
And then the Sermon on the Plain, also in Luke chapter 6. His second quote, The arrival of the kingdom does not simply proclaim a futuristic message. It instead declares that the future has entered the present. And thus, those who are disciples of the king will now live on earth like those in heaven. So that was written in the last year or two. So that's 2023-2024. So we see a quote from 1100s. We see a quote from the 1940s to 60s. We see a quote from very present. So now we're going to go back to the 40s on the last quote. Everybody should know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't, he was part of the Confessing Church. He was murdered by the Nazi regime in, in Germany. Humanly speaking, it is possible to understand the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. I'm going to stop there and interject. He understood something because he must have read about the theologians that I read about. A thousand theologians have a thousand different ideas about the Sermon on the Mount. But anyway, let me go back to it. But Jesus knows only one possibility. Sounds like Pastor Bonhoeffer is dead set on one possibility. Not interpreting or applying it, but doing and obeying it. That is the only way to hear his words. He does not mean for us to discuss it as an idea. He really means for us to get on with it. Get on with what? Get on with doing and obeying it. I think he must have read the book of James as well. This all ties together. This isn't by mistake, by accident. We're tying all these things together. Mike's sermons in Ephesians, it all ties together, folks. It all ties together. So back to, back to, and I don't have a screen for it, so let's let that blank. Back to Beati Sunt. Ethan told us what it meant. It's Latin. Blessed are. The word actually comes from the Latin Vulgate Bible. I was actually going to put a slide for Matthew 5 in Latin up there, but I thought maybe only they, they would know it. So anyway, the word beati, meaning happy or blessed or blessed, that word appears in verses 3 through 10 in the Vulgate. Every first word is beati, 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 and I won't name them all, but you can picture where it says blessed or happy in your Bible. It says beati, beati in, in the Vulgate. And so what they did was they took that and said, Beati became the Beatitudes. But that word was not created or coined as a result of Scripture. That word was written or coined by Cicero. Now, Cicero died 40-some B.C., so he died before Christ. But that Latin word in his mindset and what he wrote down was blessedness. There wasn't a Christian faith during Cicero's time, because he predates Christianity. However, they believed in a blessed state, or maybe of a bliss or something, or there were a lot of pagan gods as well during that time. So that's where the term Beatitudes comes from. It wasn't a made-up term as a result of the Bible. The term already existed pre the Bible and pre the Sermon on the Mount. Just want to give you that history there. The qualities in the Beatitudes from verses 3 through 10, those qualities are particular to a group of people. Can anybody guess who those people are? They're members of the kingdom of heaven. So I have a question. Are we members 
of the kingdom of heaven in 2024 here in Southern Perry County, Ohio today? If you would and I would say, yes, we are, then these are qualities that should be evident in our life. So what's the application? Questions and then a challenge. Do we as born-again believers in Christ, we, me, all of you, do we have these qualities today? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Do we have those qualities? Blessed are those who mourn. Do we have those qualities? Blessed are the meek. It doesn't say blessed are the weak. It's more like lowly. Get into that next message. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do we have that quality? Blessed are the merciful. Are we merciful? Blessed are the pure in heart. Capital O, capital U, capital C, capital H. Exclamation point. Are we pure in heart? Do we have that quality? Blessed are the peacemakers. Do we have that quality? And then blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Some of us have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. Maybe some have it. I'd venture to say the more our qualities line up with this, the more we would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Question number two, are these qualities, we just went through them, are these qualities evident in our life, in our character, and in our actions to those around us? Just noodle on that for a second. Question number three, not just evident to those in the church, not just evident on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights when we walk into this building, we put our righteousness cap on. Okay, Not then, but also to those outside these walls. On Monday, on Tuesday, on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday. Do those around us who do not know him, do they see these qualities in us? Again, think on it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 Again, part of the Sermon on the Mount says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It doesn't say, Let your light be hidden under a table. It doesn't say, Hide it around the people outside of the walls, but show it to the people in the walls. There's a word for that, it starts with an H. It's called hypocrite, hypocritical. Last bullet point on this, and then we'll get to a, a challenge. Are we committed to living in Christ as he taught? Are you committed, am I committed, to living as he taught? I'm going to quote somebody that's just popped in my head. Dean Taylor. Dean Taylor is a, um, I think he is, or he was, the president of Sattler College. It's an Anabaptist college in the Boston area. But Dean Taylor was in the United States Air Force, and he is a true conscientious objector. He was in the Air Force. He married his wife. She was in the Air Force. And then they had a complete change of heart. They came to the Lord, and everything changed in their lives. 
and they applied and got conscientious objector status. But he has a quote out there that is so profound, yet it's so small. Here's the quote. What if Jesus really meant what he said? So, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10, the Beatitudes. Did Jesus mean it? Or was he talking about something so far off in the future that we would all hear in this room, we would die before we'd ever see this? I submit, no way. No way. What, again, Dean Taylor's quote, what if he or Jesus really meant what he said? Think on that. The words in red, what if he really meant it? And we're going to be held accountable to it. I'm going to be held accountable to it. Think on that for a moment. Here's our challenge. And then we're, then we're done. We'll get into communion. By a, hand, by a raising of your hand, who here knows how to read? Praise the Lord. Even you young ones. I have a challenge for everyone in here who raised their hand. Challenge for me too. The challenge is to read a chapter of the Sermon on the Mount every day for the next two weeks. I will be back up here on February 16th, Lord willing. And if he doesn't will it, then you don't have to read. So, no. <laughs> Every day for the next two weeks. What is tomorrow? February what? February 5th. Read chapter 5. See how easy this is? February, Tuesday is February 6th. Read chapter... Wow. Wednesday is February 7th. Read chapter... What do you do on Thursday the 8th? Go back to 5. Do that all the way till February 16th, which is a Friday. We'll give you the weekend off, okay? You will have read the Sermon on the Mount four times. How many here have read the Sermon on the Mount four times in two weeks in your life? I have neither. I just kind of read a book and go to the next book and go to the next book. This has to sink in. The concept of the two kingdoms, as I talked about earlier, it must, must, must sink in for us to fully understand and to really look at this, that Jesus really meant what he said, whether it was just to his disciples or a few of them on a mountaintop, or if the multitudes went up, it was still meant for us in 2024. So that's our application, and that's our challenge. Another part of the challenge, and then we're done. I'm going to ask that as you read this, if you have questions or if you have observations, engage. Engage with your family members. Engage with your brothers and sisters here at church. Kids, if you're reading and you have questions, engage with mom and dad. Write it down. Now, I'm not going to let you come up here in the pulpit in two weeks and start reading your questions, but let's talk about it. Let's work through it together as a family. It's that important. And, of course, we'll dig deeper on... Sunday, February the 18th. So, I'm going to skip a lot here. As you read those three chapters, and by two Sundays, the second Sunday from today, you will have hit all of these topics. That's about most of life, just about, when you really think about it. Imagine if we could master, as much as humanly possible, in Christ, if we could master that. What would we be like? What would the world be like if the world lived like that? Amen?
If everybody could please stand, we'll close and we'll pray. And Marvin, if you could lead us in the doxology and then Mike will lead us uh, in communion. And Tim, thank you for, for playing this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word. Lord, we thank you. You meant every word of Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Lord, we don't have to ask what if you meant that. We know. So, Father, as we leave this building, Lord, may we commit to reading this for the next two weeks, Lord. May we commit to letting it change our lives. May we commit to looking uh, deep down into our hearts and our minds. Do we portray those qualities? And if we don't, Lord, bring us to our knees. Lord, I pray, we pray, that your Holy Spirit would just invade the people of Turkey Run. Just invade our lives, Lord. Convict us where needed. Rebuke us where needed. Draw us close to you where needed, Lord. We commit our lives, everything we have, to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Marvin.